our Father in heaven. Lord, you indeed are the fount of every blessing. And we seek blessing today with the preaching of the word and the hearing of the word. Think of the words in the book of Revelation. Blessed is the one who reads the word, meaning read aloud. And blessed are those who hear the word. And we stand on that promise today. Father God, we pray indeed that you would bless your word. And may it sink down into our ears and into our hearts. We pray in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. In John chapter 10, Jesus twice says, I am the good shepherd. And by saying this, he's telling us at least three things. Firstly, he is God. When he says, I am the good shepherd, I am is God's name. Yah, similar to Yahweh, which means I am who I am. So that's the first thing. Jesus is saying, I am God. Secondly, he's saying he is the good shepherd. He didn't say, I am a good shepherd. You see, there is no other good shepherd apart from him. There is no one else to whom you can turn, no salvation found in every, any other name apart from that of the Lord Jesus Christ. And a third thing, when Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, he's saying he's fulfilling the messianic prophecy in Psalm 23. Please look at Psalm 23 with me. A psalm that is so well known, but I have, I've never heard it preached on. You might have, but I haven't, apart from... Apart from what I'm trying to do today. Now, the first line in Psalm 23 is, the Lord is my shepherd. Literally... Yahweh is my shepherd. It's all in capitals. It's a tetragrammaton, Yahweh. Or I am who I am is my shepherd. Now, what did Jesus say? I am the good shepherd. So Psalm 23 is about Jesus. And today, God willing, we'll look at the precious promises in this psalm, and then we'll see what Jesus calls us to do. Look at the promise in verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd. He's your shepherd. In Isaiah 40, God says, He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom. What? Just think about that picture. What tenderness. Jesus gathers you in his loving arms and carries you in his bosom. What closeness. We're talking about the Lord of the universe and that's what he does for you. Now, if he doesn't seem close, it's because you moved away. What does James say in James 4? Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Now, David, who wrote this psalm, was a shepherd before becoming king. He knew the heartache, the work, the self-sacrifice of a shepherd. He risked his life to save his flock from lions and bears. And the parallel there, you see, Jesus more than risked his life. He gave it up for you. So what is our response? Will we draw near to him? Times in my life when I've been so dry, 
and I've scarcely been able to pray and I've clung to the promises. 2 Chronicles 15. The Lord is with you while you are with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. If you seek him, he will be found by you. So if he does seem far away, you stand on a promise like that and he says he will be found by you. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Some versions have lack. To want is just an old word meaning to lack something. He's saying we won't lack any good thing. Earlier we saw Jesus' care. Here we see his goodness. I shall be supplied with everything God sees fit. And if I don't have everything I desire, desire rather than need, then either it's not fit for me or it's not good for me or I shall have it in due time, but I am not yet ready for it. So if I don't have everything I desire, it's either not fit for me or it's not good for me or I will have it in due time, but not yet. As a young man, I wanted to get married and I asked God why he wouldn't give me a wife. Looking back, I wasn't ready. If I'd married earlier than I did, I could have married most unwisely and that would have given difficulties and grief for the rest of my life. I remember worshipping in an empty parish. We didn't have a minister and wondering why God wouldn't give us a minister. Looking back, we weren't ready. We needed to prepare our hearts and wait on the Lord. When you're sick, look to God. He is, as Exodus 15 says, he is the Lord who heals you. In the midst of your hectic lives, we can forget to give time to pray and read the Bible and meditate. And when you're in bed ill, give priority to those things and ask him to heal you and say, Lord, perhaps I'm sick for a reason. And use your time wisely while you're ill. You see, God won't give us things we're not ready for, and that's why we can go through years of difficulties if we're slow to remove the dross from our lives that hinders us, that stops us being godly. The dross, what do I mean by that? I mean the wrong thoughts, the impure actions, the wrong motives, the hurts we secretly nurse, like a mother nursing a child. You know, somebody offends you and you get hurt and you nurse it. And you won't let go of it. You, you hold the nurse close. I've been guilty of nursing hurts. And if someone hurts you, confess that hurt to God and ask him to take it away and to help you to love those who've hurt you. And that's what Christ did. Jesus loved people despite their hurting him. Also, if I can't deal with my own hurt, how can I minister to others who've been hurting, who are hurting? So, yes, be rid of the dross in your life. John Bunyan likened these sins to a man rowing a boat, looking that way while going another. And as you row towards heaven, Bunyan was saying, are your eyes fixed on Jesus or on the worldly things that you're meaning to be leaving behind you? And which way are you even rowing? Maybe you're rowing the wrong way. 
away from God. Remember Lot's wife? She looked back at the things of the world as the angels pulled her family away from Sodom. She perished. So don't look back, but fix your eyes on the Lord Jesus. Look at verse 2 with me, please. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. What are these green pastures? Literally, pastures of tender grass. And the still waters are literally waters of rest. If you reject Jesus, the greatest abundance, the greenest grass will one day become a dry, dusty desert. Pagans only take pleasure in what they can see with their eyes and their senses. One day it will turn to ashes in their mouths, whether in the grave or in old age, because life is meaningless without Christ. But someone who trusts Jesus tastes and sees the green pastures by faith. He sees God's goodness in everything God does. If you just flip over to Psalm 34, for example, around verse 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed the man who trusts in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. There is no want to those who fear him. Even young lions lack and suffer hunger. But those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. You see, whether a Christian has a little or a lot in this world, whatever he does have seems like green pastures as he finds his joy in Jesus. And if you trust Jesus, whatever he gives you, you see as tender grass. So back in Psalm 23, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters, means... He fills my needs and he gives me rest in him. So look at verse 3 now. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. He restores my soul. Before I was a Christian, I was spiritually dead. God sent his spirit to dwell in me, restoring my life, my soul to life. And that's the first meaning of he restores my soul. But as a Christian, Jesus still restores my soul every day. In the Old Testament, the Jews used the word soul to include four things, at least. Our affections, our thoughts, our will, and our conscience. All four meanings. So each day, Jesus restores my soul, my affections and feelings, when I am dis. Heartened, notice the word heart, when I'm disheartened and about to give up, he gives me new heart at just the right time. In Ezekiel 34, God says, So will I seek out my sheep and deliver them from all the places where they are scattered on a cloudy and dark day. He restores your soul, he gives you new heart when you're struggling on your cloudy, dark and depressing days. 
When my thoughts wander away from him, he stirs me up, drawing me back. And when I'm self-willed, self-willed, instead of seeking his will, he draws me back to seek his will. When my conscience has become lazy, when I don't really care about my sins very much, and I might very quickly say, sorry about that, God, or I mightn't even do that anymore. He stirs me up so that I do care about my sins again, so that I do seek him. And remember that promise? And God promises that if you seek him, he will be found by you. Now, I remember reading uh, the little kid's story Bible to our children and the shepherd with a little lamb. The lamb was always so beautifully white in the children's story Bible. But if you're a farmer, you know, sheep are dirty creatures. You know, they get dags in their, in their wool and they have to be cleaned up. And they get lost so easily. They amble along with their heads down always looking for that next tender blade of grass. And once they stray, they find it hard to make their way home. My Uncle Donald, he raised cattle because they were hardy. I said, why don't you raise sheep? And he said, I'll never own sheep. They're stupid creatures. They're totally stupid. I got the sentiment immediately. You see, he said, they get through the fence, they wander off, and they die. When my wife and I were in England staying at bed and breakfast places, one was on a farm. The woman there ran sheep. I don't know why. Because even she said, every sheep should come with a manual entitled, A Hundred Ways to Die. (laughs) You see, in stripping away human pride, we're, we're, we're stupid sheep. We stray like sheep looking for the next mouthful. The things of this world, and before I realise it, I've moved far from Jesus. During prayer in church, I can get distracted. Do I leave the oven on? Oh, that's an interesting item in the church newsletter. Same when I get, go to read the Bible at home. Oh, I'll just put a warm top on. I'll just get a glass of water. I'll just make that quick phone call that's been on my mind. I'll just check my emails. You see, like sheep, we're sidetracked by the things of the world. But if I looked up heavenward instead of at the next mouthful, I wouldn't stray as easily. Now, it's Jesus who shows me the error and brings me back to my Christian duty. He restores my affections, my thoughts, my will and my conscience to him. Why would he? Look at verse 3. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. His name's sake, for the sake of his glory. Now have a look at verse 4. Yea, though, I'm reading out the New King James. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. What does this valley represent? Why didn't the psalmist say, yea, though I walk on the high places of the shadow of death? You know, why didn't he say that? Well, let's have a look. What does the valley represent? 
in Job 10.22, it's a land as dark as darkness itself, where even the light is like darkness, a land as dark as darkness itself, where even the light is like darkness. Can you picture that? It stands for the worst situation you could ever undergo. You've lost your spouse. They've died. There are terrible troubles in the family. Your best friend betrayed you. You're struggling in exams and failure is imminent. It's an enormous spiritual battle just to pray and read the Bible. You're in a land as dark as darkness itself, a place of terrible despair. But look it's at verse 4 in Psalm 23. Is this valley the valley of death? I think the NIV just has darkness or gloom. But literally, it's the valley of the shadow of death. In the Hebrew, the word there is actually death-like shadow. It's the valley of the death-like shadow. The valley of the shadow of death. And as Matthew Henry wrote, the shadow of a serpent cannot sting you, cannot. And the shadow of a sword cannot kill you. Our fears in this life are often needless because we forget to commit them to the Lord. Our fears are just shadows. So it's the valley of the shadow of death. Stand on that when you're in a dark and gloomy place where even light is like darkness. Just say, Lord, you've promised that it's the valley of the shadow of death. And you remember that and fears will fly away. It's also the valley of the shadow of death. It's a valley. Valleys can be dark and gloomy places. One place up in, uh, I think it's Sweden, uh, just about all year round in a little town in the middle of a deep valley, they put a giant mirror up on the top of the hill to shine some sunlight down on the valley because they found that people were suiciding. You know, you know and the, the people were leaving this little town. That's what, that's what does to us. That's what gloom does. So they can be dark and gloomy places, but they're also fertile, fruitful places. You can grow more Christ-like through your trials and afflictions, like a fruitful valley. So it's the valley of the shadow of death. It's also a walk through the valley. It's not, a, it's not a frightened scuttle. It's a walk with the Lord. I, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. God chases the unconverted out of this world at the time he requires their souls. But his people walk to the other world, the life to come, calmly and cheerfully as we take our leave of this one. I was remembering, we couldn't find it, but about 30 years ago, I read this lovely story about a Scots Presbyterian minister. I just had to squeeze that in, Joel. Scots and, he, and he had half a dozen sons, and they're all either ministers or elders, and he lay dying. This elderly, faithful minister lay dying. So his sons dragged... Oh, you know, he's in his bedroom on his deathbed. So his sons dragged the piano from the hall into, into his bedroom. And they all sang praises to the Lord. 
And the dying man said, if the Lord gives me a glimpse of heaven before I go, I'll clap my hands. Because often as you're just about to die, you can't talk. You know, you can even hear things, but you, know, but you can't speak anymore, often. Anyway, so he went, at the end he went, and he died. You see, God's people walk to the other world, the life to come, calmly and cheerfully as we take our leave of this one. So it's a walk through the valley. And we know that if we belong to Jesus, everything in our lives works for our good. We needn't fear death. So why fear anything else? Romans 8, for who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? No, nothing shall separate us from Christ. It's also a walk through the valley, not in it. You see, every word of scripture is inspired, every single word. It's a walk through the valley. At times you feel your troubles will never end, but that, that is God's promise that we will come through and out of the valley and at some stage your troubles will end. At the end of verse four, your rod and staff, they comfort me. I remember over years thinking, oh yeah, he's got a rod and staff and whatever that is. But the staff protects the sheep. Whack, fighting off the wild dogs. The rod is the shepherd's crook to drag the sheep back to safety. You know, when they get stuck on the side of the mountainside, drag them back. And they both are comforting. It's, comforted, it's comforting to be chastised by God's rod when we stray because, as Hebrews 12 says, it means we are his sons. We're not illegitimate children. We are his. Have a look at verse 5. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Who prepares the table for you. Jesus does. What does Jesus do to the table? He prepares it. Not just with anything, not with leftovers from somebody else's meal, but with great care. He chooses what to give you in this life. He gives you things that help you at that time. So Never regret what you don't have, nor envy what others do have. And somebody has something you don't have. You know, and, you know, it may... I could get sidetracked here. Is some, I'll keep it simple. Don't regret what you don't have, and don't envy what others do have, because Jesus chose with great care how to care for you. And that's why you can cast your cares on him, because he cares for you. So we've seen who prepares the table and what does he do? It, he, Jesus, and he's preparing it. Where does Christ prepare the table? In the presence of my enemies. In the presence of my enemies means no matter the circumstances, I can feast at his table. Would you like to 
would you like to sit down to eat with thugs nearby? That was the first thing I ever thought of when I read this, you know, when I was young. You know, like, what if? And if, I remember taking fellowshippers through Psalm 23, and of course, you know, young teenagers, they'll always come up with the curly ones. But it's not, would you like to sit down with thugs nearby? But this verse is promising that no matter the circumstances, we can have a deep sense of Christ's presence in our lives. One of the old Scottish ministers was thrown into Bass Rock Prison. In fact, many were, dozens and dozens, because you know, they, you know, they kept preaching the word because uh, the authorities in London wanted to turn the Church of Scotland into an Episcopalian sort of thing with bishops and, um, and there was no, you know, no freedom to preach the gospel. Anyway, this chap, he was thrown into a stone cell in a jail on a rock out in the ocean off the coast of Edinburgh, Edinburgh for years. And when the, when, the, when the storms came, you couldn't talk because of the sound of the, the waves, the ocean on the rock, hitting the rock. And they didn't have damp coursing in the prison. And the waves had come up the side of this rock and they'd hit the prison and the water would come seeping through the stone walls of the prison to the inside of the prison cells. Did this minister despair? No, he wrote that as he prayed and read the Bible, every stone of that cell seemed to shine like a ruby. So sweet the sense of God's presence. So if you, if you, if you like, he was feasting at the Lord's table in the middle of a miserable prison cell. He was communing with Christ with a very deep sense of his presence. You see, I can forget all this by concentrating on what I don't have. If you just remember what Christ has done for you over the years, then you will sup at his table now. Verse 5. The second bit, you anoint my head with oil, my cup runs over. Anointing with oil in the Bible points to our being anointed with the Holy Spirit. For example, in 2 Corinthians 1.21. And the same sentence in Corinthians goes on to say, God has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. The word guarantee can also be translated engagement ring or an earnest which is a really old word for the wives what was it like to get your engagement ring do you remember it what did it mean it was a guarantee it meant the man was earnest there's that word again that old word and the holy spirit is jesus's engagement ring to you it's the same word, same word in the Bible, you know, when translated in the Greek, arabon, arabona, engagement ring, guarantee, earnest. Holy Spirit shows Jesus is earnest to make us his bride when he comes again. Jesus gave you the spirit to assure you that all the promises of God in Christ Jesus are yea and in him, amen. So this promise here, this 
points to the promise. Anointing our head with oil, being anointed with the Spirit. That's all I have the time to talk about on that point today. My cup runs over. Your cup isn't just full. It's overflowing with blessing. And then David says in verse 6, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. David says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. How can he be sure? Just think for a moment. He suffered defeats in battle. Saul chased him. You know, he was running around hiding in the mountainside. All the stories when he had to go and cut a bit off Saul's kilt. You know, and he longed for the waters. You know, of his, I think it was Bethlehem. David starved. He had to beg for food. He had to pretend to be insane with spittle dribbling down the bed. He lost Jonathan, whom he adored. He had tragedy in his family life. How could he see God's goodness so clearly given all his struggles? The answer's here. Where the NIV has love in verse 6, it's better translated covenant mercy or covenant love or even steadfast love. It's a strong word, chesed. God's covenant mercy or his covenant love follows you. Ever thought about, you know, you know why is this goodness and mercy following me? It has to follow you. God is faithful. He can't break his covenant. So his covenant love has to follow you throughout life because Jesus bound himself to you with his blood on the cross and his oath to save you. Just think about what Christ has done for you. Then you'll say with Davis, surely goodness and covenant love will follow me all the days of my life. And David, who owned a kingdom of all the power and the glory and all the trappings, will happily let go of all his wealth and dominions to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So we looked at the promises here in Psalm 23, and there are a lot of promises. But the promises are not for everybody. They depend upon whether you believe the promises and will stand on the promises and receive Jesus as your Lord. Look at verse 2. A good shepherd not only cares for his sheep, he directs and rules them. He makes me to he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. If he didn't direct and rule your life, and lead you, he wouldn't be caring for you. To be your shepherd, he must be your Lord, Lord of your life, at home, at work, in your dealings with people, in your thoughts, in your actions, not just Lord of Sunday mornings. I, uh, I remember the first time I discovered that nowhere in the Bible is Jesus called Saviour and Lord, nowhere. He's called Lord many places. He's called Saviour many a yeah, number of places. But when the words are put together, it's Lord and Saviour. Uh, I'm happy to be corrected, but I believe nowhere does it say Saviour and Lord. So why would Lord come before Saviour? If you don't want him as your Lord, then you don't have him as your Saviour. And you don't have him as your Shepherd. 
And look at verses two and three. They're tied together. He leads me beside the still waters, or literally waters of rest, is paralleled by he leads me in the paths of righteousness. You only have the still waters of rest and peace with God if you seek to walk in his righteousness, the righteousness of Christ. So you only get the rest and peace with God if you seek the righteousness of Christ. If I reject Jesus Christ and his righteousness, I reject true happiness. I reject what he offers because only Jesus gives me peace with God and eternal life. So what did Jesus say in John 10, verses 27, 28? My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. So let us hear his voice and follow him. Trust and obey him, because there's no other way to be happy in Jesus. I thank you, gracious God, for all your exceedingly great and precious promises. And may we remember to stand on those promises. So, this psalm is so chock, chock full of your promises. Father God, draw us ever near you through Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.